So we're into our third week uh, of this new series, uh, The Names of God, and uh, Carl's already shared with us a couple of times, and he shared with uh, about the Lord Adonai, which is the Lord Master, and Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And I find it interesting that, that God, our, our Lord, he has these different names to describe him, to, to understand him. It's as if he has these names been given to him, or he's given himself these names, uh, to describe his characteristics so we can begin to understand more about who he is and how we can relate to him and how he operates as Lord. And, and that, that's fascinating. And I guess the reason he does that is, one, to teach his people in, in the Old Testament, the Israelites. And, but actually now for us, we can begin to understand uh, what that, that looks like for us. We, we know that we've got this, this God who has these characteristics that... We've been going through, for this is our third week now, but also we can see that in Jesus as well, and we're going to come on to that in just a little bit. And I remember when Dan sent me uh, the list of names that came through, there's about 16 or so names, and I was looking at them thinking, oh, this is, this is actually a tough decision. Which one do I pick to preach on? And this morning, what I want to share with you is El Shaddai, which translates into English as the Lord Almighty. And before we get into the name, uh, let me just give you some background information that I think will prove to be useful for us. So El Shaddai, it appears uh, in the Old Testament, um, particularly in connection with the patriarchs, so that's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then it appears in Numbers, and then heavily in Job. It appears 31 times in Job, and we'll come on to that in a little bit as well, and uh, why perhaps in Job it is appearing the Lord Almighty, uh, in terms of the name of God, why it is that we have El Shaddai rather than any of the other names that the Lord is given. El Shaddai could be translated as the all-sufficient one, so perhaps that paints a better picture for you. And El Shaddai is first used in Genesis 17, so very early on in the grand scheme of, the thing, of things in the Bible, we have uh, the Lord introducing himself to Abraham as the Lord Almighty. And I think that's quite significant in a sense that actually it, it, God hasn't hung about to, you know, he's not taken very long to reveal that that's one of his main characteristics, that it's not like that's coming later on in the day. He's, he, he, wants, he wants his people to know right from the start that one of his main characteristics, characteristics is the Lord Almighty. I think that's really important that we get to grips with. And we are going to start there. We're going to start in Genesis 17. We're going to be looking at quite a lot of scripture this morning. We'll be bouncing around a little bit, so do bear with me. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Genesis 17 to begin with. There's some down at the front if you haven't. But before we get into what, the, what it says in Genesis 17, let me just pray. Let me pray for us this morning. Dear Father, I pray you would really speak to us this morning through your word and your scripture. And as we look at what El Shaddai means and what, what, what you're trying to say to us when uh, we, we refer to you as the Lord Almighty. I pray that we begin to understand more of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 1, and we have God appearing to Abraham, who at this stage is, is still called Abraham, and he, he, he appears and he self-identifies as this El Shaddai. He self-identifies as the Lord Almighty. And in verse 1 he says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me 
faithfully and be blameless. I read this for the first time and I thought, wow, that really is quite the introduction, isn't it? The Lord Almighty, I am the all-sufficient one, I am everything, now go and live your life faithfully and be blameless towards me. Verse 2 carries on, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So we have this uh, introduction of God self-identifying as the Lord Almighty, the all-sufficient, the most powerful thing in existence to Abraham, or Abraham, who he's called at, the, called at that stage, and we'll come on to that in a minute. And he's almost saying, this is who I am, and I'm going to bless you. I am going to increase your numbers. I am going to make you into this great nation. And, and, it's, and so there's this huge moment, uh, and uh, it's as if the Lord is saying, I am the Lord Almighty, be faithful. I will make this covenant with you. Uh, and can you just imagine what that must have felt like for Abraham for, for this God to appear to him and, and identify as the most powerful thing that he's ever come across, the most powerful, most sufficient being in existence. How does Abraham respond? Verse 3 says, Abraham fell face down, face down as if to submit to the Lord out of awe and fear. And it continues, and God said to him, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will, make you, I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The Lord, he introduces himself as the almighty, the all-sufficient one. And then as evidence of his power, he changes Abraham's name and I don't think we want to get away from this too quickly because it's quite a significant moment if, if you come across a name change in the Bible I'd encourage you not to run away from it too quickly or to look over it but actually just let's take a closer look at why that's happened so Abraham uh, Abraham changes his, uh, his, his name changed to Abraham so Abraham means high father Abraham means father of the many and like I said, this is significant for Abraham, but actually, I think this is really significant for God as well. Why do I think that? Well, one, it signifies that God is in control of that person's life, so he's in control of Abraham, he's in control of everything that is going to happen to him. But it shows that like, at the click of God's fingers, he can just change someone's identity. He is so powerful, he is so uh, sufficient that no longer will he be called Abraham, but actually he's going to change his entire future to be known as Abraham, and he will become the father of many. He becomes the father of the Israelites. He's known as the father of our faith. He is the first patriarch. He's the first person that God begins to work through to establish a people, uh, which eventually is us. So it's really quite significant that I think the first time that Abraham's name, or Abraham, when Abraham's name changes to Abraham from Abraham, I think it's a massive thing that God is introducing himself in that moment as the Lord Almighty. So he's saying, this is everything I'm going to do with you. This is everything I'm going to do. But you know what? To prove to you that I'm going to be able to do this, or almost as evidence, or to, to confirm that it's going to be possible, before I even tell you I'm going to do it, I'm going to introduce myself as the Lord Almighty. I really don't think it's... 
I, mean, I really don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a, a really big deal, actually, that he introduced himself as the Lord Almighty and then goes on to say, Here, here's what I'm going to do for you. Uh, I'm going to create this covenant with you and establish a people. And the two things he does is exactly that. He changes the, name, the, the man's name in the click of his fingers. His entire identity changes. And he creates this promise with Abraham. He creates this covenant with him as well. I feel like God introduces himself in this way in order to leave Abraham with no doubt, no doubt that he is able to do it. He says, I am the Lord Almighty. I have the authority to change names. I will establish my people through you. And why? Because I am El Shaddai. I am the Lord Almighty. And I love the way Abraham responds in verse 2 because the rest of the passage goes on and the covenant is quite technical and it's a bit like, oh, what, what's going on? We don't really understand it in our modern day terms because it talks about circumcision and the first son and after eight days or so, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do that. And we struggle with that a little bit. But I think verse 2 gives us a glimpse into what we can do when, we get, when God approaches us or when we approach God. And verse 2, it says, is where God says, you must walk faithfully before me and be blameless. Walk faithfully before me and be blameless. I think this kind of ties into a little bit of what Carl was sharing about last week. I wasn't here myself. I listened to it online. and He shared the story about when Abraham is, is told by God to go and sacrifice Isaac. And like Carl said last week, that it is a really heart-wrenching story. I and mean, I think we struggle to listen to it sometimes or we struggle to read it and it really kind of messes with our heads because we can't understand why on earth would Abraham do that and I think this covenant helps us understand that Abraham is simply doing all he could to remain faithful as heart-wrenching as it is for Abraham as painful it is for us to read Abraham has, has had this experience where God has appeared to him he's introduced himself as the all-sufficient one, as the Almighty. There is basically no one bigger, better, stronger than God. And Abraham knows that, and he knows that God has promised him so much. And so for Abraham, as painful it is, as it is, I think all he is doing in those moments where he's looking like he's going to sacrifice his son is just remaining faithful because he already knows that God has made this covenant with him. I think that begins to help us understand a little bit as to why Abraham may have done that as well, as painful as it, though, as it was. I mentioned earlier that this name El Shaddai is used in Job uh, 31 times, and I think that's significant as well, because it highlights that this characteristics of God, where he is the Lord Almighty, that actually, that really wants to be expressed in the book of Job, his might, his power, his sufficiency, which is funny, because when you read Job, Actually, it's all going wrong. It's all pear-shaped and it's confusing because you think, God, why would you want to be known as the all-sufficient, all-powerful? And yet, all we can see in Job is it going absolutely pear-shaped for Job. His, his family have been destroyed. His entire livelihood is gone. Uh, everything has literally gone wrong for Job. And yet, when God speaks to him, he's given the title El Shaddai, a name that is associated with such power. And I wonder whether 
you've ever experienced similar stuff to Job, I suspect many of you will have. Uh, you know, you've been going through something, you begin to doubt or question the Lord, because that's certainly what we see Job beginning to do. Uh, maybe you're experiencing that this morning as well. And I was looking at Job when preparing for this morning, and this passage that I read, it really stood out to me, and I want to share it with you this morning. And it comes from chapter 38 in, of, of Job, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And it really stood out for a few reasons, and I'll come on to those in a bit. But let me just read this passage to you. And it comes after Job's entire life has been destroyed. If, anything, if, if you ever read Job, I suggest that you read the first kind of start of it. And then you can, in a sense, whether I'm allowed to say this or not, you can almost skip the middle bit and then come to the end bit. And this is towards the end. Like the, the start is it's really intense. It's all gone pear-shaped. The middle bit is just like, whoa, whoa, what's going on, God? Why would this happen? And then the ending comes to this. And God speaks to him. God speaks to Job out of the storm. And he says this from verse 2 of chapter 38. He says, Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And what were, were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. And that speech, it continues on. That, that's just the start of it. And I haven't got time to read it all to you this morning, but you get the idea. God simply is reminding Job of who he is and what he has done. And the two things I want to point out to you or draw your attention to is the first thing is that the Lord answers Job out of the storms. It's in the first verse of that passage. It says, and God spoke to Job out of the storm, or God answered out of the storm. And I think that's key because it suggests to us that regardless if you're going through something or if you're going to have a situation where all hell seems to have broken loose, here we see Job in that situation, and yet God doesn't wait for it to settle down. God doesn't piece it back together. He doesn't even make a glimpse at making it look like things are going to be all right. He simply turns to Job and puts him in his place quite sharply. He says, like, who are you, Job? This is what I've done. And in a sense, you can almost feel so little. And, and God, he ends this passage with a question. He ends this passage with a question. And he says in chapter 4, he says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? And so, as I said in Job, we see this name El Shaddai is used to highlight God's power and authority over earth. 
but more importantly over us, over Job, over our lives. And that's not to say that we can't wrestle with God. I think sometimes we feel like we're sinning when we wrestle with God. And whether we are or not, I'm not so sure. But I don't think it's necessarily a big issue to wrestle with God because you do see that elsewhere in the Bible quite a lot, especially in the Psalms. You see people wrestling with God all the time. And I think what we're trying to, what God wants us to know from Job and this situation is actually, regardless of what you're going through, I'm still the Lord Almighty. I'm still in control of the situation. I'm still all sufficient. I can still piece this all back together. And we do see pictures, uh, scenes of throughout the Bible where God is still in control. Uh, and I, I'll move on to this because I'll give you some examples of where God is in control, where he is the Lord Almighty. And I find it interesting because Carl spoke a few weeks ago, in the first week of this series, Carl spoke, and he spoke about how the Lord revealed himself to Moses, those famous words where he appears to Moses in the burning bush and he identifies himself as the I Am. So the first time in human history, God reveals himself in his most personal name to Moses. And then if you jump forward a few chapters in Exodus, you come to Exodus chapter 6, and God speaks again to Moses. And he says this, he says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So God said to Moses, I appeared to, the, to, to Abraham, Isaac, as El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Now, I read that passage and I wondered, why on earth, why on earth would God choose to not reveal himself fully to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob? Why would he only reveal himself as the Lord Almighty to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why would he do it that way? Why would he give more of his identity to Moses? And I, I don't know the answer exactly, but I do think that it's meant to be this way for a reason, and I do think the Lord is kind of teaching us something we can learn from here. And I said earlier the significance of a name change in the Bible, especially so a name change with Abraham, Abraham to Abraham, and we see it with Jacob, his name changes to Israel. But here, here, we have a name change of God. See, in the past, he's been known as the Lord Almighty, or the Lord, or Jehovah Jireh. And now, he's been known as the I Am. And I think what this is signaling to us is this, this stepping stone process that God is taking his people on towards the eventual revelation of God through Jesus. He's taking us on this stepping stone. He's saying, okay, well, you need to know this about my identity. You need to know this about my identity. You need to know this about my identity. And then eventually, way down the line, we're going to get to Jesus and we're going to see God in human form. And, and what we're going to see is actually that Jesus is going to appear and his character all these characteristics of God that we've seen in, in, in throughout the Old Testament, we've seen uh, so all these all, the God, all, the Lord Almighty, the Jehovah Jireh, the Lord Adonai. We're going to see all of that in Jesus, and we're going to see the all-sufficient, the mighty power. We're going to see that in Jesus. It's a stepping stone towards our personal relationship with God. It's God's grand scheme. It's His big plan. 
to eventually reveal himself through Jesus. But what I think is important for us to kind of get our heads around this morning is that the Lord Almighty, that characteristic, still remains. It still remains in Jesus, and it still remains in God. And where do we see that? We see that in Jesus when he calms the winds, he heals the sick, casts out the demons, forgives sins. We see El Shaddai in Jesus. And thanks to Jesus and thanks to his life, his death, his resurrection, which, quite frankly, I was chatting to some students uh, this week at college and we were talking, I said, oh, what do you think is the most powerful thing that God has ever done? And he was like, oh, well, that's, that's easy, that's, that's so easy, that's the resurrection. I was like, how so? What do you mean? Why, why the resurrection? And he said, well, when Jesus died, he had all of humanity's sin upon him. And yet God was still powerful enough to raise him from the dead in order to give us this personal relationship with him. So this new dynamic to our understanding of El Shaddai where we have this far-off God who is the all-powerful, who in Job's case is in control of his life, yet it doesn't quite feel that way. And now we know that the Lord Almighty is working in Jesus. He is still the Lord Almighty, and we see that in his actions. The characteristic of God is still in Jesus. God remains all-sufficient and all-powerful, but the stepping stone continues to Jesus. And the stepping stone continues again to his spirit. His spirit moves amongst us now. His power in his spirit. And uh, I want to come on to the New Testament because actually we see the outworking of the powerful, this God, the Holy Spirit, we see the outworking of El Shaddai in the New Testament and in our lives as well. And I want to read to you this prayer that, that Paul writes to the Ephesians because it speaks of this power in an interesting way. It says in Ephesians 1, I pray that your, the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and it, his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What does he mean by that? What does Paul mean when he says, his incomparable great power for us who believe the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. What does that look like for us? And I did have a little scout around the rest of the New Testament and I came across a couple of passages again written by Paul where he's giving him more personal accounts of this power working within him. He says, my, he says in Corinthians, he says, uh, the Lord speaks to Paul. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. 
And Paul says, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weakness in insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. And then elsewhere in Philippians, he writes, I know what it is to, to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I think those two passages, they give us a great example of the outworking of the Lord Almighty through the Holy Spirit. This El Shaddai characteristic of God, first introduced to Abraham in Genesis 17, seen in Jesus, but now also seen in the Holy Spirit. Which actually it means something quite significant, because if you're a Christian here this morning and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, Actually, it's a phenomenal prospect because that means that the power that Paul is speaking about here also rests upon you. This is the final thing I want to say this morning because I find it interesting the way that this power is working in these few couple of examples because it seems to put an emphasis on God's power working in our weakness. And that seems really counterintuitive to me but time and again you see it in the Bible. You see God working through a weakness of an individual. And I think the same must be for us as well. Those areas in your life where you struggle, where sin seems to have a grip on you and you just can't shake it off, I think it's those areas where God's power breaks through. I mean, we see the power of the Holy Spirit in healings and in sickness and, uh, and just kind of breaking into people's lives and transforming communities. But these two examples I gave, I think it's just brilliant signs where the Holy Spirit is, is uses the power, the El Shaddai power, to work in the weakness of one's heart, of one's person. So I encourage you this morning to pray into those areas so that God can work through your weakness, so his power can work through this weakness. I love that phrase. Uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.